Hello and welcome to What We've Learned, Series 3. My goodness, we're back. Yes, indeed. I'm joined as ever by Shane. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening to wherever you are in the world, people. But Shane, hello. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you, Steve. Excellent. Good. A bit more from you in a second because we've got a stellar first guest for a series that we're focusing on leaders and pioneers with Series 3. Um, hopefully you've listened to a few of our other episodes that if you haven't, they're on Spotify, they're on Apple Music, they're on various platforms that you can listen to your podcasts that give a flavour of what we've been up to. But we want to talk to some leaders and pioneers. And we kick this series off, episode one, with, well, an exemplary leader, Shane. Who have we got today for these dear listeners? So today um, we're chatting to David Gilbertson. I'm so excited because David is um, a really interesting person who's had a stellar career um, in B2B media and today runs a portfolio of non-executive uh, directorship roles, including chairman of Beacon Associates um, and Vixio. He's chairman there too. But actually, I think it's a name that people may be familiar with because of the, the time he spent building up uh, B2B media companies from a very small one uh, originally working for I think it was uh, a great title uh, Metal Bulletin uh, became CEO and editor of Lloyd's List but probably one the name where people might know him from is when uh, he ran a CEO informer for over 10 years and took them um, from really a, a small uh, media business to become one with over a billion in sales so you know a fantastic experience to share with us today Fantastic indeed, Shane. Not only have we got David the pioneer, David the leader, incredibly successful one, but also David the author as well, as we talk to him about his book, The Wine Bar Theory. A fascinating read and indeed a fascinating listen, as you're about to find out. Welcome, David, and thank you ever so much for joining us for this series three of What We've Learned podcast. I'm really happy that you can come and have a chat to Steve and I, and particularly because this series is all about leadership and pioneering. And I can't think of anybody better in the world of B2B who's demonstrated uh, great leadership, but not only that, has written a book about it. Uh, wine bar theory so um, we're hoping to chat to you a little bit about that and why you wrote it so perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why you why you wrote the book in the first place well absolutely and, and lovely to talk to you Shane and Steve um, delighted to, to be with you uh, yeah well it was a few years ago now that I wrote wine bar theory I'd stopped working full-time as an exec in 2011 I think um, and so I had a little bit of time on my hands and I wanted to try to get down onto a, onto a page some of the sort of distilled experience that I'd had from the previous 30 odd years of being involved in businesses of various sizes, small, small medium and large. <clears throat> and I felt that I had observed a few sort of uh, enduring truths uh, during that time. Um, and one of, the, one of the key ones was... Uh, to, to try to make things simple to to help communication because a lot a lot of communication in business I think is is very complicated and as it says in wine bar theory um, you know complicated means you you don't really understand it um, so I tried to write the book in a in a form that would be uh, instantly understandable by anybody who picked it up whether they were 
um, starting out in business, whether they were an entrepreneur, whether they were running a large organization. So it's quite a big, ambitious concept. Um, but I wanted, I felt it should, it should be possible to do that. So, so what Wine Bar Theory is about, it's a short book about how to work more uh, effectively. Uh, it's about um, how to prioritize and how to declutter and how not to make the mistake that so many of us make, uh, which is confusing how busy we are for how effective we are. Um, and we're all now increasingly in this digital world, we're all now living in it at a time where we think that we've got to do lots of urgent things all the time. Um, and very often, so, you know, so pressing are those, that is that urgent list of things that we, we postpone or, you know, or put off indefinitely um, things that we know are actually important for us to think about, but we just haven't got time to think about what's important because we've got all these really urgent things to do. So Wine Bar Theory, if it does one thing, it, it's, it's an attempt to try to stop that uh, and to encourage people to observe what actually matters and therefore to pr provide their, um, to place their priority there so they can work sm more smartly rather than um, you know, more exhaustedly. David, it's a really interesting um, point you make because it talks about it in the book about, it does, to quote you, whether people work in office, school, hospital, tennis club, etc. as you've just said, it really is about the, the, the way you spend your time and, and the, the quality and prioritising what you do, which we can always go back to regardless of how much experience we've got. And, and what struck me as well is, is a great quote about uh, people off, work often can uh, run a marathon and they move the organization forward a step or themselves and and that then says to me that again whatever your task is in or out of work there's something to learn here there's 28 things you can think about and learn and remind yourself of of focusing on what's important rather than being you know it's an overused phrase but a busy fool um i i i'm interested not only in the journey you've been on to write this and your back story your back history of career is is incredible but how pertinent do you feel it is after you've written it in terms of does it still feel well these 28 things are as fresh as they were when they first came to my head let alone when i wrote them or, or has the world and your thinking changed in that time um well obviously we, we we're going through a, a period of change in the, in the world at the moment so it's a good it's a good testing point steve to to uh, for me to look to look at these to see whether i still uh, would, would hold to them and, and, can, and consider those, those, those core pillars of, of wine bar theory to be uh, as relevant as they were five, six, seven years ago. And the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Um, I think these are, uh, these are um, guides to what in, in critical things that if you, don't, if you don't have them in place in business uh, are really disabling. Um, and one, one example of that, I mean, some, some of the, some of the um, uh, impetus or some of the imperatives in wine bar theory are, are for leaders of business and the role and the role that they have, the, the, the obligation that they have to distill down what it is that they are doing, what, what it is they are doing with their organization and, and convey that uh, clearly to the people who they expect to work for them. If, if they don't do that, then they deprive those people who work for them of the ability to contribute. If you don't know what's important to the business, then you can't really make a suggestion. If you, if you don't know whether the lights have been left on at eight o'clock at night uh, because somebody thinks that that should happen, you don't know whether to turn them off or not. So a lack of, 
a lack of clarity and communication about this is who we are, this is what we stand up for, this is what we're doing, and also this is what we're not doing, this is what we don't tolerate. If you haven't got that, then you relegate everybody who works for you to doing a job. So they can only do the job, so they do the job to the best of their ability as they understand it. They try and listen out for what their instructions are, and they try to follow those instructions. And then on Friday evening, they go home. But they're none the wiser. And actually, that's a, that is a fundamental problem of getting, of getting a business to grow. Because if you, if you are not enabling, if you're not empowering the people who, who work with you and, and for you to contribute, um, knowing where the broad goals are and what the priorities of the business are, then actually they cannot contribute. Not only will they not contribute, they cannot because they don't know what the rules are. So the wine bar theory concept was, uh, you know, it starts from that point of view of uh, the, the importance of simplicity of communication and clarity of purpose and uh, st strategic um, uh, goals that are clear to everybody. If you haven't got those, you've already got a problem on day one. So David, I, I oh, this resonates so much with me and I, it, it's very close to my heart about, um, you know, the, leadership lead more manage less and particularly try and avoid the temptation as you say to to do or to tell but instead to, to bring people on but I, I'm just really interested in, in why do you feel perhaps amongst you know you see you, you've worked with great leaders and you've you've brought on people in your teams there are people who don't get it do you do you think there's any reason that some leaders are poor leaders and they don't do what you suggest? Do you, do you have any theories about that? Um, well, I think I think um, some bosses are bossy. <laughs> uh, yeah, they and they think that they have to behave. They either behave like that all the time, in which case they must be quite difficult people to live with, or or, or they decide that you know, in order to assert their uh, their status, that they need to behave in a way that is not conducive to people being able to talk to them and learn from them. So uh, if you if you decide as a as a leader that you are an instruction giver, um, then uh, you're going to get the the outcome that I, I just described. But I think you know, most you know, or sorry, many um, modern businesses are, are recognizing that a a degree of empowerment of people within the business is absolutely essential if you want to grow, um, and you can. You can allocate responsibility to people uh, really easily. Uh, it's a it's a, almost a sleight of hand. If you're the manager of a business, a middle manager or a, a supervisor, and you're responsible for something in your organisation, you can get the two or three people that work for you to share that responsibility by breaking by breaking what you are responsible for down into smaller chunks, and say, I would like you, Charlie, to be in, completely in charge of this. You, Helen, you can be in charge of that. And you, Chris, you can be in charge of this. And we will work together to make sure that all happens. Suddenly then those three people feel that they have got the responsibility to deliver and they own that, that responsibility. And, they, and you will get as the, as the supervisor or the manager or the big boss, you will get a huge amount of, of uh, commitment from people if they feel that it's their job to make sure that that is looked after. Whereas if you never allow them to do that, they will just wait for the clock to reach 5.30 and leave the building. 
David, that goes even further, doesn't it? Because if you've got, you, often people learn their management style from their own managers. So as you say, if you've got somebody who is Mr. or Mrs. Shouty, then probably their underlings, when they become management, are just going to adopt that behaviour. Whereas that last far healthier scenario is those three that you've named in that fictional team are very likely to adopt that with when they grow up in that or any organisation. So you get this kind of viral spread of good behaviour. If you, if you don't break the cycle, the cycle will continue forever of shouty or, or as you said, one of your number 24, lead more, manage less. So the other side of someone who micromanages and never lets them um, flourish you really have a responsibility as, as the most senior in that organization to recognize your behavior could last a very long time, way beyond your tenure. Yes, and I, I talk in the, in the book uh, just as, a, as, a, as, a, as an image of the, the role of the doorman in, in, in an organization or door person uh, in an organization. Sole job to, to look after the door. If that, if, that is, if that is something that you are, do not put them in charge of, then they, they will do whatever they think you require them to do with the door. So they will not suggest to you, perhaps I could hold the door open, perhaps we could uh, uh, make sure that it's, you know, we've got an umbrella when it's raining, but all the different things that they could suggest about how they fulfill their role um, will, not, will not come forward until you say to them, everything to do with this door, I want you to look after. And I want you to make sure that that is the strongest possible welcoming portal for our organization and you are the person who's in charge of it at that point you've then empowered that individual to start to make constructive suggestions about how things might improve it's great to hear i mean you know the word empowerment and it's and it's an interesting challenge i know there are lots of uh, people who step up to that and really relish being empowered but what what have you done in the past David perhaps with teams where you you have people who feel uncomfortable with that level of responsibility because obviously with empowerment um and being given that trust um you know sometimes people don't always feel comfortable with that well I think that's true Shane but actually you can break this down to um to whatever level is appropriate um uh, take it into the into the infant school classroom you know you you are in charge of collecting the pencils to put them into this pot and make sure they're on the table for everybody by the time the lesson starts you know that that is you know you can give people a degree of responsibility which is within their capability uh, but still gives them a stretch and something that they uh, can uh, they know they need to take seriously and can aspire to and it doesn't have to be a a big decision heavy uh, risk-bearing responsibility um, it's everybody in my view should be responsible for something uh, if you're not responsible for something then what are you actually doing in your job so i think it's a it, you can break you can break this this that unit trust down right down to quite small pieces and allocate it out and then suddenly you've got an army of people who are all pulling in the same direction but that comes back to your first point, I think, David, which is that that person who's leading at the top, the ability to empathise and to communicate as well, as you said. If, and, and as you were talking, I, I was just going back through the good and bad um, figures in my head, particularly the bad of, of the, the CEO or the finance director, particularly in organisations I've worked in, who's charged with communicating the vision for the next fiscal. And they would start with the word fiscal and 200 people would immediately go, I don't know what he means. 
then talking the language of the people and and back to that well I you know the door the door person might be relatively a small cog but they're really important cog if you give them that ownership and that direction of why you're important in here it, it feels like that's the way that you'll get them to in their head well I'm the chief executive door operator they've got that it's pride in what they do and they're, they're willing to push and row the boat in the same direction if they know the, the direction of that boat and they feel like you know they're, they're on it with it with everybody uh, on an even keel if you will well that, that i mean that's i couldn't agree more and uh, i tell you i can tell you a little story about it. earlier in, in in my career when i was a middle manager at business i thought i was quite important in business um but i overstated my own level of importance because when i was invited to an extremely important meeting for important people it turns out they ran it in a cinema so I went to the cinema and met hundreds of people who were even more important than I was. And they were all doing something different. Each of them was, because it's quite a big group, and each of them was in charge of quite unrelated activities. And as a result of that, the, this was a meeting with the chief exec and the finance director. And they were on a, it's like being in the gods in the theater. I can still picture it now. They were, they were on the stage a long way away they didn't actually have a, a megaphone in their hands, but in my memory, they did. And so they had a megaphone and they were, this was a motivational annual meeting for the very important people like me, of which there were many scores. Um, and they came up with their motivational message, which was this year, the business is, will grow by 15%. So around in, in my business, just because of the simple fortune of where I, where I was, nothing to do with, with my uh, excellence, I was sitting on probably 40% growth. Uh, next to me was somebody who was working in, I think it happened to be a hotel bookings business, uh, who was going to do well to do 2% growth. So I had 40, they had two, and there were every possible other number was in that room. So the motivational message of 15 didn't hit anybody at all. So everybody left that, that cinema un, uninspired, unenthused, and slightly baffled, if not least me with my 40%. What am I supposed to do with my 40% if, if, if we're trying to do 15%? Um, so it's, it's, you learn a lot in business, I think, from both good blueprints and bad blueprints. And that is, as you can see, that's stuck in my mind as a not a good example of a blueprint. You, you need to tune your message so that it is relevant to all the people who are listening to it. While I'm thinking of that, I, for that reason, I, I'm always extremely wary about sending a CC'd email with anything other than just a factual content in it. Because every single person who reads that email reads it differently and differently than you think. And so it's quite a bold call, not to say a, you know, the, the foothills of arrogance, to send one message to 10 people at the same time and expect them all to react in the same way. Um, so That's fascinating, David, because I just want to jump in there because I think this goes back to your, you know, your understanding of communication and the need to tailor a message. Um, to your audience but lots of people I mean your, your book you know promises the nirvana of saving time but some people would say well is David telling me to send five emails then but presumably you are because in the long run that's going to save you time yes I mean I think I think it's 
perhaps the sort of the back the backdrop to, to this to this book is that we are far we, we're far um, more ready to start doing something new than we are to stop doing something. So businesses progressively over time get busier and busier because people eventually have ideas and they think that maybe we should try this as well and what about that and let's add this in. Um, people have less and less time then to, to think about what actually matters and which is the most important things to do because I'm now doing 15 things whereas when I started I was doing three things. So over time that, that, uh, that uh, cluttering effect uh, kicks in and it, it makes it um, very very difficult then to to decide where you're going to allocate your time should should you should you go uh, looking for trouble and trying to solve the difficult problems you've got and spend most of your time over there on things that aren't working properly or should you spend your time on the things that are doing fine actually and have already hit all the numbers and everyone's really pleased with them so which of those is more which more important for your time solving the problem or working with the thing that's easy because it's actually highly su successful already the answer to that in case you didn't already get there is the second one is more important you know, the ones that are already winning deserve your attention you don't want to be spending time you know trying to solve problem issues that you've created for yourself because you've over you've over exerted into other areas you know having a sense of this is where this is what my business is all about. This is where my easiest money is. That's where you should focus your attention, not on saying I'm exhausted on Friday because I've done these 15 things and I've got to come back next Monday. In fact, I'll probably come in on Sunday as well because I haven't had time to get to them all. I, th I think that's such a pertinent point. More now than ever, it's been in the last year with people um, having to make this mass exodus out of the office to home to have to think about their time and and many people I know friends neighbors colleagues that have never worked from home are suddenly finding after the initial shock of it goodness I've got more time but they've also then got this problem of they've got even more time so they're just filling it and perhaps again back to that point around being a, a busy fool that they're running marathons every day and, and making steps millimeters forward perhaps that's the danger is you can just fill your time and feel well I've, I've done something but it, have you done something of great value rather than it just distracted yourself by, by noise? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And David, I'm going to ask you a very specific question. I mean, we've got a fairly broad audience for this podcast, but marketing being Shane and I's background, um, I, I'm going to hone in and I don't expect you to know numerically all of your rules, but number 11 is invest in winning marketing. And it picks up actually your thread of that last point around, you know, spend your time on winning. Invest in winning marketing discuss what, what's the answer david for people that are in marketing of, of a non-marketer could go well what are the things this is this kind of infers you have seen experience of where people are investing in losing marketing any th thoughts from your leadership roles over the years of of what winning marketing looks like and and how a business or a marketer might learn from that well and um, thanks steve I, i'm a, i'm a, a um i'm a passion, passionate advocate of, of marketing um and I think it is probably um, one of the most uh, misunderstood and sadly imprecise roles in, in the whole of the firmament of business. So everybody knows what, what a CEO is. Everybody knows what a, probably what a, a CFO is. Everybody probably knows what a CTO is. 
but then a CMO actually can be a very broad church of different skills. Um, at one end of, a, of, of marketing, one might have people who are at the sort of hospitality um, uh, end, end of the, I want to run it, I will run an event and I will make sure you have a nice time at the event. At the, uh, along, along the line, you might have some people who are you know, wanting to make sure that um, brand colors and images are, uh, are correctly aligned and are important. And then at the, at the, at the far end, you will, you will have data scientists who are trying to analyze um, what, cost, what prospects are doing and what customers want. Uh, all of that is marketing and plenty more inside that. Uh, and in that imprecision, I think, um, comes a problem because uh, in my view, the chief marketing officer of a, of a business should be absolutely in center stage, um, talking to the customers, understanding the customers, understanding the product, understanding the relationship with it, and being able to run the creative and the scientific aspects of marketing uh, on behalf of the whole company. So that is a pretty pivotal and central role for a, for a modern business. But not often do you see that role being occupied to that, with, with that uh, full empowerment. Um, and part of the problem, I think, is that um, many businesses still uh, think marketing is a cost, uh, which is a, uh, a, in my view, uh, an astonishing um, and unfortunate error. Uh, marketing is, is how you generate profitable revenue, which is the very thing you're looking for. So marketing isn't, isn't a cost. Mark, anything you do in marketing, providing you know how to measure it, uh, will be able to deliver uh, uh, profit to you after its own costs have been fully covered. So the generation of return on investment in, in marketing is actually a is the prime engine inside a business for profitable growth. Um, so the point that uh, on uh, investing in winning marketing uh, that's in the that's in wine bar theory was to bring was, was an attempt to bring that to light um, because most businesses still have a marketing budget. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. It, it's a it's a fixed budget too. And I, I, I'm still shocked at a number of um, marketing leaders who, who don't seem to be able to clearly argue their case that they are an engine of growth. And part of the reason I think, David, and I'd be really interested to hear how you tackled this is maybe they've started measuring the impact of their marketing. But as we all know, it's not a perfect science. You know, it is you can get close, but it's not always absolutely nailed every last penny of return because of the complexity, particularly in B2B, of doing that. So so any tips for marketing leaders trying to get out of the dead end of having a fixed marketing budget and moving to, um, you know, a cost per acquisition or a cost per customer or an investment per customer, even better return on marketing investment to well, get them on that journey? Yeah, I think, I think you won't escape from, from the fixed marketing budget if, if, you, if you lose the battle on measurement. Uh, if, you, if you cannot say to a hard-nosed CFO or even a hard-nosed CEO, uh, well, I'm not quite sure 
what works um, and ho 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 50% of marketing we don't know if only we knew which 50% worked you know that is you know, kindly leave the room you know you, if, if that is the if that's the level of understanding that the, the that that CMO has of the impact of what he or she is doing, then that is a, that's a problem because it doesn't match the understanding of the of the rest of the C-suite about how they try to focus in on on, on control and, and management. And so they won't give that person an open-ended checkbook uh, if they can't say, "This is I can show you definitively that if we do this, we will make more money." So I think we have to continue to push there, and if not eliminate then really reduce um, uh, the spend on things that we don't. I mean, and it's a perfectly proven and long established marketing technique is, you know, let's test this by not doing it. Let's see what, let's see what happens. I think, you know, that, that sort of, that consistent, uh, rigorous challenge uh, to the to core assumptions about we have to do this, otherwise the wheel will fall off. We need to test that on a consistent basis. Just stop doing it, reduce what you're doing and see what happens. And then you can confirm, well, actually that was important. It is important. We now need to gear it back up again because we've validated that this is uh, through, through testing that this does make an impact uh, and, and therefore it is contributing to profitable revenue. You've then got the beginning, I think, of a, of a, of a proper you know, adult conversation with the rest of the C-suite to say, I want some more money for that. There's a perfectly legitimate counter to that from the CEO or the CFO to say, okay, we'll save some money somewhere else. Um, but if you, if you can show that an area of your activity costs you five pounds to do and you make 10 pounds, then you should not be constrained by budget. And that's the metaphor in, in, in Weinbar theory. You know, if somebody walks into a pub and says, I'm, I'm selling um, uh, 10 pound notes for five pounds, uh, the person who is a marketing director who's got a fixed budget will say, I've got 15 pounds. Instead of, I've got an unlimited number of pounds. If you're going, if you're going to sell me 10 pounds for five pounds, I will keep giving you money until the 10 pounds stops arriving because you are generating profit from that, from that activity. So it's, it's, it's really, really common sense there that provided you can show that that's what's happening, that you have dynamic budgeting and that you are able to reinvest the gains you're making because the market is, is responding so positively, positively to what you're doing uh, in doing more of it. So what, I, what I'm trying to say in that uh, invest in winning marketing, do not stop things that are winning. Um, continue to invest in them until they, until they drop until you have tired that particular technique or that particular campaign or that particular model, until you've taken all the money that's on the table. But if the campaign shows you that the market has got plenty of money on the table in response to it, then continue it and accelerate it and amplify it until that money disappears, it, whatever it, your budget was. Yeah, and it's <laughs> I'm distracted by the idea of being in a pub where someone brings ten pound notes. Depends which part of the world you're in as to whether you trust them or not. But uh, I'm there, I'm, and I'm, if I'm having a drink while doing it, even better. It's just, it's a really good point because it, it, again, it, it threads back to your point around communication. I think David is um, if if I'm being introspective as a marketeer, I often think that the, the CMOs failing is they don't talk the right language of the CFO. 
and and that's your point as well is well you need to know what your winning marketing is cmo before you go in the room if you don't you, you know you've got no hope but if you do and you can articulate what winning marketing means to the cfo not just to you and and particularly in this day and age you may have a whole bunch of digital marketeers who give you all sorts of metrics which are great navel gazing but the cfo looks at and says well what does that mean to me and my bottom line if you can help articulate that, then yeah, you can clean up all of the ten pounds and fifty pound notes and all the other stuff that comes in through the door. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a slightly uh, unfair question, I think, David. Uh, not meant to be, but you, you've got 28 children. The rules of of the book. I just wonder whether you've got a particular favourite, one or two that you find you either lament more to to people like Shane and I, or you find yourself going back to. Are there any? Is, have you got a favourite child of the 28 rules that you, you found? through since writing the book and, and coming back to it over yeah, the years they've, they've, they've all got uh, they've all got their pluses and minuses of course you love them all equally i get that i get <laughs> that exactly yes. um but the uh the one that's probably raised the most the most smiles over over time is the uh um beware the plausible idiot um which i forget which number that is number 20 i thought you might say that i was hoping you might say that <laughs> we're that, playing bingo <laughs> that that is um the perils of uh, the hiring process, the perils of recruitment, um, um, but also um, uh, something perhaps a bit more uh, insidious than that, which is the reluctance of organisations to promote from within. When a senior job comes available, very often organisations are much more comfortable to go through a quite laborious, uh, increasingly laborious these days, uh, recruitment process where they meet people who've already got the business card elsewhere which is the job they're trying to recruit to so they so they draw an enormous amount of validation by the fact that this person is already a chief cook and bottle washer in another organization so we're looking for a chief cook and bottle bottle washer so we will interview them um, and they give them an enormous amount of credit and they and they give them an interview or two or three, and then they decide to uh, make the appointment. And I don't know what you two guys' uh, success rate is on hiring uh, people on the basis of, of interviews, but I, mine is probably somewhere between 40 and 50%. Uh, in other words, um, we're really in sort of chimpanzee territory there. Uh, which domino do you want to pick up, this one or that one? Um, so you get it wrong quite a lot and it's it's we've all been here to when you bring somebody senior into an organization who is the wrong person then that is a critical damage to the business which will take one about a year to get rid of uh, and two will cause all sorts of collateral damage while it is not being addressed um, because somebody who is a plausible idiot, if you've made the mistake of hiring that, uh, will drive away anybody who you've got in the business who's any good uh, and will hire some other plausible idiots to work with them because only a plausible idiot will work for a plausible idiot. So they will find it impossible to get, any, to get anybody any good into your organization. So it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's meant to be a, an, a, an amusing, great picture by Bill Butcher who did the, all the, uh, the, uh, the drawings in, in the book, an old, an old friend of mine, um, uh, to, to illustrate that, that, that issue of, of the plausible idiot arriving in the organization. But that, but that is the problem with that. Now, people do this because they prefer, and I, and I, I go back to that 
percentage I gave you, about 40 or 50% success rate of, of recruiting people from outside. What's the success rate, by contrast, of recruiting people who, from inside, who you already know are talented and good, but they just, this would just be the next step up? Uh, again, you'll have your own numbers. My success rate on promoting people internally, who I know already uh, are excellent uh, and just need to be put into a new area to where they will bring that excellence that they have elsewhere and learn new, uh, and learn new skills uh, on top. My success rate on that is about 80 to 90 percent because I've removed the, the element of doubt or risk about it because those people have done the longest interview imaginable because they've been working alongside you for the last two, three, four, five, N years. So those are the people that you should promote uh, rather than, if at all possible, rather than bringing in people from outside. Final point on that. And again, it's, I see this, and it makes my heart bleed each time I do see it. Very often people who have got a, a, a senior role will just decide they're going to recruit outside and then announce to the department that they've appointed a person without ever having a discussion with the two people inside the business who would be most obvious contenders for the role. And if you do that, you're sending a fantastic message, a fantastic downbeat message to the, to the whole business, which is either, uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't even consider you for this role, uh, even though you've been here for six years, or I did consider you, and I decided that you weren't ready for it. Both I completely agree, David. I, I couldn't agree more strongly. Should be greeted with somebody disappearing out the door, waving a, waving a hand behind them, because that's not a place you want to work. So I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passionate one for me that I think, you know, it's a, it's a, hopefully it's, a, it's an amusing anecdote inside Wine Bar Food, but it's not an amusing thing, you know, that, that businesses prefer to ignore talent that they have grown and, and proven themselves in favour of somebody who appears to have done a, to have done that job somewhere else. And I think you've got the stats spot on. I mean, I would absolutely concur with that, David. I think that, you know, it was a very hard lesson for me very early on in my career that um, I, I thought I was doing the right thing by staying um and i really wasn't sure about it and there seemed to be people who would you know come and go to get a promotion you seem to need to leave but i was very fortunate i had a boss who promoted me probably over promoted me early and i repaid that in spades but the result was i got made a director at the age of 28 the ones who thought they were being clever and smart and leave, leaving you know in two years to have a small salary increase missed out but they were also ones working for a boss that wasn't promoting from within. So they, they thought the doors were closed and they were closed. So I, I agree with you. It is invidious when people don't invest in their talent and don't encourage them and businesses don't grow as fast. And that passion for people really comes through in your book. And it is a great read. Um, so many learnings from it. So a huge thank you, Steve. Yeah, just to echo that, David, it's funny, actually, as you were talking, I, I was thinking about a previous guest we had, Estelle from Club Med, who was on Series 2, and she had, the, she's now MD of Club Med in Europe, but she was the CMO, and she had that exact life where she was asked to um, cover, temporarily cover the MD role twice, and then put back in her box. So, you know, you're given a, a seat at the table, and then it's taken away from you, and, and you're absolutely right, is that if if people don't feel they've got the ability to and and happy story 
ending for Estelle, she she actually was brave enough to say, well, why aren't you giving me the job? And they went, oh, uh, okay, good point. And and it, it happened. So, you know, you, you can grow up the talent. You're growing up the talent. Why not exploit and use that talent? And if you don't, as you say, they'll just exit us out. And I think more now than ever, as organisations in 2021 start to go to the next phase of normal with this with the work balance that we, we've talked a bit about today individuals will look and say well am i am i right here is this company worthy of me rather than am i worthy of the company and and the ones that will stay are the ones that feel they're valued and have got a chance to to flourish and to grow up uh, and and why be tied the organizations that don't recognize that that they'll lose people so one one Further, uh, if, you've st if we've still got time. Uh, of course we have, yeah, please do. What I do like in the book is, um, is stand in the other person's shoes. And uh, I think if I had to, if, if you would only give me on a desert island one out of these 28, I'd take that. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing how, how little we actually do that and how little we uh, draw upon the the, the consultants that we've got on our shoulder, uh, and every one of us has got it, um, which is ourselves. Um, when, we, when we are thinking of doing something in business that is a change and uh, we're wondering how customers will react to it, we quite rarely ask how we would react ourselves, whether it's customers or uh, colleagues. Uh, if I'm going to do this, you know, what will the reaction be? And the answer tends to be, I don't know what it will be, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Well, you know, there's a filter to apply before that, which is, you know, how would you feel if that happened? So pro do a little, a little test before, before, you, before you implement a change. Uh, if that was you and you were on the other side of the table, would you be pleased? Would you not mind at all? Would you be actually anxious? Would you be appalled? Well, how, how would you like to be treated that way? Um, and we don't often consult that internal um, compass um, and we don't rely on what we would think. We, we prefer to rely on, well, we're not quite sure, so let's just see what happens. So that's, that's the, that is, I think is an important one that we, we, should, we should take more time to try to stand in the other person's shoes to predict how they will react. And relating to that, um, is a, you know, is, a, is a point about customer centricity. Um, if you ask any person in business, literally any person in business, are you a customer centric organization? The answer comes back, absolutely I am. I'm 100% very, very customer centric. I'm, I think of little else. Uh, and in actual fact, and to, draw, to make a, a stat here, which I will uh, just use for color rather than um, um, really hard proven figures. Um, what percentage of time do we on average spend uh, in a week thinking about ourselves in business, i.e. our processes, our production, our tasks, our challenges, our difficulties, our, our lunch, what percentage of time do we spend thinking about that compared to what percentage of time do we spend thinking about our customers? And, you know, I'll offer you, with, with full confidence, I'll offer you 90-10 there. 90% uh, of the time looking into our own, into our own uh, all-absorbing priorities, which are to do with ourselves, 
as a producer, if you like, and at best, 10% of the time, thinking about our, about our customers. And to just to wax lyrical and just to, to press that point home, uh, what do we actually know? What do people actually know about, about our customers and how our customers use our product and what they actually do in their business every day not just what they say on their website, but when you go into that office, in that customer's office, what happens in there? What are the processes that they work for? What, what are the things that they spend their time doing? What, what matters to them? What's important? What is actually causing them to tear their hair out? Do you, do you know any of that? Because you will only know, you will only find that out if you've asked the question and, asked, and you will need to ask those questions in quite some detail before you'll be able to get to that level. Or, you could, even go, you could even go and say to that, to that trusted client, would you mind if I came and sat in your office for a day and just worked in your department with you and, and give me any tasks to do you like, photocopying or making the tea or whatever. I'd just like to understand how you work and what matters to you. That's what customer centricity is. That, a, a, a business that does that, that is immersed in the detail of what rocks the customer's boat what causes them difficulty and where and what is important to them is able to serve that customer much more completely, much, much more fully than any business that sits in its own office or at the moment in its own houses, uh, thinking about its next task that it's got to do with its own business. So I, I make I labor the point to to because I think it's an important one. We we kid ourselves for the most part that we're customer centric because we know the names and the addresses of customers and we spend and prospects and we spend a lot of time trying to get them to buy you know what we've done the cake we've baked um, but we don't ask them what they actually need and we don't know how they use the cake that we have provided for them and we don't know what changes we could make to our offering to them that might be beneficial to them and beneficial to us so i i would urge people to to have a think about when they say that, that line about oh I'm you know I'm terribly customer focused, uh, what that actually means and whether they are and and how many out of ten having heard what I've just said they would give themselves uh, as a customer focused business. So uh, and please you know I I think the the concept of going and spending twenty four hours in a customer's office you would learn more in that twenty four you know eight hours you'd spend more in that eight you learn more in that eight hours than you'd learn in eight weeks sitting in your own office. Wise words indeed, David. And I think, you know, really bringing together that empathy. And I, I love the term, you know, walking in their shoes, whether it's walking in the shoes of your employees or walking in the shoes of your customers. There's no substitute for it, for really finding out what's going on. Um, and much of your book is about people. And I think that passion really comes through. And there's just so much to share, which is great. So a huge thank you. Um, it's been a real pleasure uh, chatting to you and lots more to uh, absorb and learn from the book. But I'm going to share my my personal favourite, which is actually 28, um, which is, is basically taking this time not just to think, but making sure you work and you build a brilliant business that allows you time to enjoy life. Because after all, we all might spend a bit more time in wine bars, especially going forwards. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're looking, for, looking forward to being able to return to them. Oh, wow. Fantastic stuff from David Shane. Just loads and loads within that in the time we've got with him. Um, 
feels timeless to me. So many points that he made that are in that book that I think was 2013 it was published. And obviously David's collected those thoughts in, in that long stellar career. But it doesn't feel like anything's dated, if, if, if not more pertinent now than they've ever been. I think it's a really good manifesto and, and certainly a really good read for people, whatever their career, whatever stage they're at. I agree. And I think that there's there's so many takeouts from that. But I think the premise of the book is what I agree it is that manifesto of doing the right thing or in fact doing less, but thinking more and thinking smart. And I think it's made me think, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go and um, give a few copies away of this to some of my uh, my mentees, particularly. And uh, I think they'll find it very, very worthwhile reading. Yeah, I think that's an excellent pay it forward type thing to do. Um, wisdom and, and, and place to his last point, right? To enjoy giving that, that, uh, those words of wisdom to friends and colleagues. So a massive thank you to David Gilbertson. Shane, a big thank you to you. And indeed, a huge thank you to you, the listener. Thanks for stopping by on our first episode of Series 1. And as I said, Leaders and Pioneers is where we're going with this. So look back for our next episodes coming down the line with some equally enthralling conversations with some brilliant people. You can find us on wwlpodcast.co.uk that directs to our LinkedIn page where you can pitch up with the chat. You'll find the link to David's book, amongst many other things. And indeed, you can find other episodes uh, that you may want to listen back to or indeed listen to. Uh, the first time. Top tip, you don't need to listen to them in chronological order, although you're very welcome to. Dive in, see it like a selection box. Uh, A selection box with none of those awful yellow mints that you might be used to from Quality Street. It's all good in there. So we'll look forward to hearing from you soon uh, and we'll be back with another episode in the next week or so. Thanks everyone.